Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 48 of the End of Sport podcast. In today's episode, we'll share with you an interview that we had with Otito Obonia. Otito is a junior defensive lineman at UCLA and under 20 USTF national champion in shot put. But many of our listeners will know that he was one of the major mobilizers in the recent Pac-12 We Are United movement. So we are absolutely thrilled and humbled to have Otito on the show. But before we get to today's show, we just want to give a brief shout out to a friend of the show who has been putting in work to really shed light on the harmful rhetoric that comes out of barstool sports. Now, many of you on, and if you've been following us on Twitter um, or listening to the podcast, you'll know that we're heavy critics of Barstool for a variety of reasons. It, it in many ways provides a safe space for misogyny, for homophobia, for toxic masculinity, white supremacy and racism, and massively contributes to the sort of overall narrative about the legitimacy of sacrificing athletic labor to satiate our fandom. And earlier this week, our friend Ryan and his wife were doxxed by Barstool Sports and called out on their podcast, which predictably led to a massive amount of trolling. So we just wanted to, from myself, Johanna and Nathan and everyone at the end of sport, send a message of solidarity out to Ryan. Um, and if you could all give him a follow and show him some support, he's at Ryan underscore Riley 78. And we'll link him in the show notes, obviously, uh, and show him some support because he's putting in the necessary and massively important work to push back on these harmful, truly harmful narratives that pervade the barstool world. So Ryan, solidarity with you and your wife as you push back against that horrible, horrible outlet. And we here on this show will help you in that fight. So with that said, please enjoy the show. Tito Abonia is a junior defensive lineman at UCLA, under 20 USTF national champion in shot put, and bronze medal winner in the discus. Best of all, by far best of all, he is one of the organizers of the Pac-12's We Are United movement, which we have talked about uh, at length on this show, and um, could not be more thrilled to discuss again with one of the actual participants. Otito, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Hi guys, thank you, thank you for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is, as I said, like truly, truly. You don't even. It's hard to <laughs> um, overstate how how much of a joy it is for us to talk to you because yeah. we are we just have so much admiration for the work that you're doing. And it's like we you know we talk college football a lot. We talk college football labor. We talk college football organizing, but really like. We are united. You guys are the gold standard um, of yeah. all the work that's been done. And so, you know, we just we're going to get into that at length, but we have so much to talk to. Uh, but again, we, we can't we can't get launched without giving you a chance to tell us how 2020 has been treating you. The pandemic, uprisings, fires since you're on the West Coast. How has right. life been treating you in Los Angeles? Um, it, it's been it's been chaotic at the same time, equally revealing. Um, you know, I had a lot of time that kind of, you know, think to myself, like kind of world slowed down for a little bit, um, the pandemic and, and everything 2020 started out to be, um, definitely been very interesting, um, 
Yeah, interesting revealing year for me. I mean, personally, there's thing, a lot of things I've learned. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful for the time I was given, um, you know, to kind of kind of think and be around myself a little bit and kind of have my own um, space. Um, but, you know, it's unfortunate what's going on with the pandemic and, and all the all the lives it's ruined. But, you know, in, in a positive light, it's, it's definitely um, been very revealing for me on a personal yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think we're gonna get into that because um, really, you've been doing amazing things, uh, and there's so much to talk about this year. But I actually want to start pre-pandemic um, because for me, one one of the things I always try to do is I, I want us to think about the lived experience of what it means to be a college athlete. And I think that that's one of the things that's really missing. It's especially missing when we're talking about fans or like coverage on ESPN or whatever else it is, right? Like this real spectacle that becomes, that's produced around college sports. And it completely erases the, the kind of day-to-day grind of um, the life of a college athlete. And that's kind of the stuff that you need to see and understand in order to start to think about it as you know, labor or work as opposed to some kind of form of play, which is, of course, how it's typically perceived. So what I want to do is to ask you first, would you mind reflecting on your first couple years as a college football player? In those first years, did you feel any discomfort in your working conditions? Um, You know, again, prior to the pandemic, was labor activism something that crossed your mind or came up as a topic of conversation with your teammates? Um, for me personally, I, I don't think that, you know, labor activism is something really necessarily crossed my mind um, initially, um, especially coming out of high school or, or being in high school. I, you know, you kind of kind of always told the same thing, you know, that it's a great opportunity to um, go play Division One athletics, which it is. Um, but yeah, that type of stuff never really crosses your mind. You just know, like, you're one of one of a million that's having, you know, an opportunity or a chance to um, to go <clears throat> play big time division one um sports but so yeah i think when i i think when i got there i, I don't think i really noticed anything I, I knew the work was hard and i mean it was gonna be hard i mean it wasn't it wasn't really um, it wasn't really unexpected it was just more so um but i, I think towards my um my sophomore i kind of started to realize there's a huge problem just from a like a mental uh, like, a, like a mental health standpoint not, not even really me personally it's like a lot of guys i've talked to you know having issues um, not necessarily you know, directly like have mental health issues, just like, you know, a lot of a lot of issues just like with the work and and, and being over um um you know, a lot of overdrawing type of or overbearing type of um stuff just with the day to day life um of an athlete. Um and then I kind of started realizing that there's a huge problem with like I, I wouldn't necessarily say people were over invested. It's just like, you know, people were they're working hard and kept working harder and harder and harder, whether, whether it's school, whether it's class, whether it's their, their family, whatever, um, you know, but it was hard to kind of work smarter um, in a way that you kind of balanced a lot of things, but at the same time gave, you know, hundred percent effort in what you were doing. So I, I kind of noticed an issue there, but I didn't notice anything from a, um, from a, from a work, like a, a activism standpoint, I, I kind of just felt like, you know, it was like a perfect storm to do something, um, like what college football is like in, in terms of exploitation and whatnot i think i kind of thought it was you know it's a perfect system in terms of like people not really realizing what's going on and then the outside world's kind of being just kind of blind to it in a way um but just as just as blind as the outside world is like the actual um workers are are blind as well so it's like 
it wasn't something I really noticed until probably probably right around the pandemic or 2020, honestly. I mean, I, I kind of noticed there was something wrong in general, but I, I didn't really know like the, the specifics of it. Now, every every time we get a an athlete on this show, we love to give an opportunity to kind of inform our audience on the the day-to-day life of sort of what is happening. And you've alluded to this already. I'm interested in getting your take on what life is like for a college football player. What does a sort of typical day look like? And how do you overarchingly respond to the claim that college football is exploitative, whether we're talking about issues around compensation, around educational experiences and opportunities, race, or health and safety? Yeah, um, I think I, I think when you when you put it that way, it's it's very it's it's I don't know, it, it's hard to um try to put it into words um in, in the way that it, it's very exploitive. Um, you know, I think the day-to-day life of an athlete is it's kind of, in a way, it's like well, you know, they always say like, oh, it's, you kind of sign up for it, and kind of under, you know, you kind of expect a lot of these things that are happening. You, but basically, at this point, most people expect the worst and expect nothing less than um, mm-hmm. than kind of what's going on. Considering the stories they've probably heard from, you know, other people or their their friends, family, their teammates, whoever um, might have played Division One football at some point. But um, I think you know. It's easy to to exploit when when everything is like being done in the name of like you know in the name of either winning or the name of going to the NFL or making a pro or, or whatever the case may be. So you don't really realize what's going on until like you've done it all. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I think like that work is is definitely required, um, but I think it could be done in different ways. There's, there's a number of ways football can be reimagined or Division One football. Or collegiate football could be reimagined as a whole. Um, you know, it's interesting to see how people um, try to like try to act like as as if it's like, all right, it's this way, and so like it should always be this way, and it can't be changed. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think there's a number of ways that you can kind of reform um, this, um, what's going on as a whole. But I, I think from an exploitive nature, I think it's just naturally how. Um, it, it it was designed. I don't I don't think there's really a way to like be able to like put into words how it's just like um how how it, I think it kind of just naturally operates this way and it's hard to explain like every single facet or every nuanced um, thing that happens. But I think when you add up a lot of the different the small things, you kind of realize like how how big of an issue it is. But a lot of that kind of gets um swept under the rug when you know it's done when when you're going to play for you know thousands of fans or um you know you're like or you're under like a big time division one name or whatever the case may be so it's like the that kind of fame and stardom is um kind of hides that that part of it and i guess the part like that's rewarding it's it's for a lot of guys um you know it gets you know they get the opportunity right so was that um well i get the chance to do this and do that um at the division one level and you know i get to go play of fans or be that cool guy on campus so a lot of for a lot of them it's it's rewarding in that nature but um i think things are only rewarding like that when you don't really know what you're worth i guess and what your value is totally so 
tell us a little bit more about that because I, I totally hear what you're saying. Like there are the system is designed to be to seduce you kind of to 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 almost see it the way it is perceived on the outside, right? Like you are privileged, like you're getting something, like you're like you should be grateful. Right. right for the opportunity to have these um this opportunity to have this coaching this opportunity to get to the next level to get these lavish locker rooms and play in front of all these fans to be the big man on campus so to speak right i, I hear you loud mm. and clear like i get that that would be seductive for anyone but i also hear underneath what you're saying like you i think you keep intimating that's disguising something right like there's something else that's actually going on there that that stuff is kind of covering up and making it difficult to see I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about sort of what that underbelly actually looks like from the inside. Um, you know, not name, like this isn't about like naming names or things like that, but it's more just like, what is it like? What do you have to do day to day? What like is it as kind of is the life of a college football player as glamorous as it seems on the outside? I would say um, I think it. I think that changes depending on who you talk to. So I think like, for example, a freshman coming in would be like, yes, like hundred percent, you get this, you get, you know, these meals, you get this gear, you get, you know, you get to be the big man on campus. Um, but whereas like a third or fourth year or, you know, whatever may, may say otherwise, um, you know, and not to say that, you know, they, they, I'm ungrateful. It's just more so like that type of stuff, that materialistic type, um, stuff that's not really real in any way. Um, I, basically like i could say it gets old um or it, it doesn't it, there's really no value to it you know for me personally i've never really cared for for that type of stuff um so if you're talking about what's being hidden like that that's being hidden for a lot of people i mean when they come to college it's like you know it's this it's kind of this whirlwind of this this and that and you kind of realize like this is not you know as great as great as it seems from that standpoint um you know and they realize that a lot of this you know even like when they, you know, stuff they do with the lockers and, and the jerseys and the gear and a lot of stuff doesn't never, never really matters because you're always going to be putting in substantial amount of work on the field, you know, from whenever you wake up, whether it's like 5 a.m. to, you know, 10 or 11 p.m. when you go to sleep and then you know, fall camp is a little, a little bit different in terms of hours. But, um, you know, that type, that type of lifestyle is like you live that every day and then hopefully you don't, you know, fall asleep in class or you don't get too tired to study. Um, but I think that that is kind of something like that's just kind of the life you live if you want to. I mean, number one, if you want to make it, number two, like if you want to make it to the you know to the pro level, um, number two, I I think if you want to you know do what you're supposed to do on your on your team and some of those demands there, I, I think um, you know that's kind of how it's been drawn up to be in terms of how competitive this this sport has become. Um, but you know, in terms of like how demanding it is, it, it's very it's one of those things that it's hard to it's hard to try to put into like like a, like to measure it it's just like i think the mental toll is higher than anything you know the physical toll is like yeah like that's you know that, that's a given you know, your, your body's gonna go through some things um but i think that the effect that it has on your on your on your on your psyche is is different it's it's a whole nother ball game um if and, and that's not even talking about injury I mean, once you get into that realm of injuries or surgeries or or rehab recovery type stuff i mean that's kind of when it takes a toll on a lot of people um you know people lose people lose sleep over over certain things you know whether it's you know you know you missed you missed a tackle or you missed a you missed you missed a play or whatever or you, or you overslept or whatever the case may be i think that type of stuff worries people and they kind of get 
removed from the rest of the world and kind of get bottled up and it's and that's kind of where you have your teammates to um help you out from that standpoint but i think that's kind of where it takes the most toll i think it's mentally and I, people don't realize it until they're done and they kind of realize they're kind of lost um from just an identity standpoint you kind of lose yourself a little bit <clears throat> and i think it's 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 one of those things you have to really find a balance for i think that word balance is overused but i mean it's it's really true it's like, like don't find a balance. You'll kind of get eaten up um, either like whichever way. It's like either you go all the way in, you kind of lose yourself or kind of stay, you know, out of the, the realm of like, you know, putting in the work and, and doing things like that. And you kind of fall out of the, the system either way. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, you know what, like what you said there about identity, losing your identity, like the challenge with that is something that really echoes what Michael Bennett writes about and things that make white people uncomfortable. Um, the way it's like mm -hmm. when people have been telling, and he's talking about also with, you know, college and then professional, et cetera. But it's like when people are telling you how to live your life every waking moment, right? Like how does a person retain their identity? You're being turned right. into a kind of machine, right? Like they want, right. that's what succeeds, right? It's not, it's not a bad plan from the standpoint of management if they want to win at football. Right, right, turning right. people into like football machines. That's a good strategy for winning a football. It's maybe just not quite as good a strategy for <laughs> being a human being. In the exactly. World, right? Exactly. You uh, get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, okay, so he, there's another thing that you talked about earlier, which which is like right in kind of in our wheelhouse as well. You mentioned this issue of um, this idea that people signed up for college football, right? Um, and, and the other thing you also mentioned, which was fascinating to me and is not something I think is widely understood. You did say, you said that most um, you know, 18-year-olds who are coming to play college football at this point, they actually do perceive the system as fairly exploitative. Um, they, they understand that like, you know, you're essentially being used by these institutions. Obviously, you are getting something in return. Um, there is like, a way in which you kind of need, if you, want to make a, if you want to have a professional football career, you have to go down this road, right? So there isn't a lot of choice there. Um, right. But like the, just the very fact that that perception exists, that's really interesting. I wanted to underline it. But I want to get into this thing about consent and coercion in the context of college sport, because it's something we talk about a lot. And what I'm thinking about here is the structural dynamics, right, from the, system, from the systematically racist and thus fundamentally discriminatory nature of U.S. society in general to the inaccessibility of higher education, broadly speaking, right? Like these are not college sport or college football mm -hmm. issues per se. These are just American issues. Right? right. But they're actually we can't divorce them from college football because the people who play college football live in this society. Right. And this society shapes the kind of opportunities they have in the world. And it makes college football seem more or less desirable. Right. More or less like something you would be willing to participate in, even if you don't want to participate desperately. Like if you don't desperately want to sign up for this thing you already see as exploitative, you may still see it as like the best of some bad options is another way of framing it. Um, so that's why for me, it makes it difficult to accept that athletes are in, in that sense, freely signing up or consenting to the dynamics of college sport. And Dr. Billy Cole, excuse me, Dr. Billy Hawkins has referred to this system for that reason as the new plantation. I'm curious how you see the issue of kind of consent coercion uh, in whatever way it kind of strikes you. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that's, kind of, that's, you know, um, that's always, you know, been, been in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, when, when you're, like you said, 18, 19 years old, getting recruited, 17, 18, 19, getting recruited, um, you know, your whole life, you're kind of told like the same thing. It's like, look, especially if you're, if you're, you're, you're black or some type of minority, it's like, 
you're you're told the same thing. The only way, only way you're gonna either get to college or make it in life is do some type of sports, football, basketball, something of that nature. Um, and, and there's a there's an outlet for that. You know, you can go play Division one sports, get on a scholarship. Um, if you don't make it, you have that education to fall back on. But it, it's a way that gets that kind of rallies everybody and, and you know coerces everybody to kind of um, join and do something that they may not necessarily be signing up for all the, the bad stuff, but they indirectly sign up for it, um, you know, because they, because they want to make it out. Cause I like what you said, it's like the best of the worst choices is because for a lot of them, they like, especially when they go recruit from these inner cities, from these, um, so low income neighborhoods, it's like for a lot of them, it's like, look, like either you go play division one sports or you don't ever go to college or you don't ever, you know, I guess you don't ever, you might never, you never succeed. You might go, you know, work at whatever place um, for the rest of your life. Um, you know, it's a minimum, minimum wage job. So um, from that, from that aspect, it definitely forces people to um, choose like the, the, the best of the, the best of the worst. And, and for, for a lot of people, it's that it, it's college football um, or, or college sports. And so from, from that, from that aspect, it's like, it's, it's a save. It, it's, it's a kind of like a savior type thing. Um, but it, it definitely doesn't do well from just from a, like from a moral standpoint, because, you know, people don't necessarily understand. I mean, they know, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. People, nobody's stupid. Like they know, like going, going into this, like what, what it, what it is. And it, it's just sometimes when you, your hopes are, you have high hopes for, for making it. And if you don't make it, it's like, dang, like, Kind of realize like sheesh like i you know i'm kind of you might even back where you started for some of these some of these people i mean the the, the graduation rate for black um student athletes is is, is at 50 percent um it's not it's not high um and so i think if anything it shows you how how, how exploitative it is um so it's very interesting to see you know how how like that kind of coercion kind of go, goes into play like when you sign your your like your letter of intent um, you don't read any of that stuff because you know, like, none of that stuff is going to change your mind because getting an opportunity to you know, go get an education and um, do things from from that standpoint. So, I think for a lot of people, they don't really have a choice. Like, it's either you work for this, or you either you work to go play Division One sports, or you don't, um, or you like, or you don't make it at all. You know, you know, it, a lot they just don't have any other option. So it's it's but i i think I, th I can't remember if i if this if i saw this statistic right i think less and less people are playing college sports though um from, from what i understand um but i think i'm pretty sure more and more people start to understand like kind of how um it works i mean in, in, in terms of how like the, the the lower class is kind of getting to college and whatnot i think as time goes on there's gonna be less people playing but for, for that reason so now I just have a, a little bit of a follow-up in terms of like the, the letter of intent moment. And I think like, like in, in media, this moment where athletes are sort of signing their letter of intent is kind of played off as this so, sort of overarching euphoric moment where like all the hard work has been paid off, like all those typical tropes, like this is the greatest moment of one's life. I'm not suggesting it's not, but I'm curious in your experience um, and talking to to your fellow colleagues and and athletes around you, were sort of any of you aware of these dynamics when you were signing off on that letter of intent? And if so, like, is that moment of euphoria like a realistic 
representation of what you were going through while you were signing that? Um, for me personally, um, I, I don't think the euphoric. It wasn't really a euphoric moment. I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall that ever feeling. Like, for me personally, it's never been something. I, I was never a person to strive necessarily. I mean, I don't know. My parents always, you know, told me and and you know, helped me understand that like this this route that I was going on was never the only route for me. Like I always, I could have always gone in and applied mm-hmm. and, and um you know, gone to college on my own. So that wasn't necessarily like a, that was never a thing. I just liked to play sports. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't any different for me, but I, I would say for, for other people, you know, well, I guess to touch upon the, like, if I did, I know what I was getting myself into. No. So like, I, I think generally, yeah, like I knew from like a, like a hard work standpoint, and it was going to be hard. I knew there was, you know, you had to work hard and all that stuff, which is, you know, generally what is said, the overarching stuff, but, I think the specifics, which is to me, like the, the hardest part is like the mental tool. That's that I don't think you can really ever imagine like what it, what it takes from that standpoint. And I think that's, um, and not just from like a, Oh, like I'm working hard and that's taking a mental tool. I just think that a lot of like kind of just get beat up over time from a number of things. And, you know, some, the way college sports are structured doesn't necessarily help, help you, um, you know, from that standpoint, but and for my other teammates, I don't, I don't necessarily, I can't really tell. I mean, for a lot of guys, it's like that moment has never really been talked about. I mean, we're, we're kind of always all here on the assumption that we, um, that we all had that euphoric moment or that moment of euphoria. So I don't know exactly how they feel from, from that standpoint. I do know that most guys didn't know that this is what they were signing up for. Um, but they did know it was going to be extremely hard. So. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to to my next question because you've you've talked you've mentioned this already a number of times and I really want to to get into it because this is another issue that we've been really hung up on on this show in general as you would um know kind of chatting um with Nathan but the issue of not only physical but mental health um and the health and safety sort of questions overall in college football. This has been a focus on this show since its inception, as we like continuously focus on the harm associated with sport. And we think, um, and we're of the opinion um, that college football overall is sort of this sport that the harm, um, the, both the mental health and the physical health issues that arise out of the sport are undeniable and underemphasized in a variety of ways. And I think this is particularly relevant in the context of the pandemic, where we're seeing a lot of these health issues really sort of laid bare and opened up um, when it comes to college football. But we're also thinking about the overarching sort of incredible violence of the sport in general. It's an inherently violent sport that we kind of can't deny issues of health, um, both mental and physical. Um, Could you give us a little bit um, or give us some sense, some sense of the amount of pain and injury, whether that be physical or mental, that you have to endure on an everyday basis in the sport. Um, and sort of, what does it sort of physically and mentally feel like to be a college football player? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a difficult question because it's it's hard to um, explain in any amount of words. But I guess I can try my best. Um, you know, for me, it's it. There's 
there's always been like the physical pain where it's like, well, soreness or you're, you're banged up, bruised and bruised from like a game or a practice, um, you know, you know, trouble walking and, and all that stuff. But um, I, I don't know, you kind of just get used to it. You know, at first you're like, dang, this is really bad. But at some point you're like, well, you know, this is kind of like your body just like, internally feels like this. You know, it, when you get it, when you get a break, you kind of kind of reset a little bit. But um, you know, for most of the season or or during the off season, your body is kind of just. I mean, at least for me, my body is my body's been broken down. Um, you know, in a way that's just like it's very normal for me. Um, it, it's it was tough at first in the way that I felt like you know I I didn't want to. Well, I guess in a way that I was like, dang, I didn't realize this was type of work. Um, it, it was gonna be, but I, I knew it was gonna be hard. Um, you know. I think, but I think it's like I said. I think I really want to emphasize like the mental, the mental. I think the mental part is really difficult because it's like I think no matter how good your program is at overemphasizing academics, which not many do, but if like the few who do, you know, are at least trying to do the best from that standpoint. Um, but it's one of those things where like, dang, I'm trying to study for class, but I'm so physically um, worn out. Um, that I don't want to do that, or I'm, or I'm going to class and I know like I'm not going to be able to focus because I'm so worn out, or you know I might not do well on an exam because I, I know that I haven't got enough sleep or whatever the case may be. I was you know studying plays or whatnot. A lot of times you're kind of forced to put your sports over your academics on a number of you know almost all the time, and, and that's kind of just how it's seen. It's it's, it's very na- it's a very natural thing. It's not it's like not even really anybody's telling anybody to do that. It's more so just like um it's just kind of generally understood that that's kind of the way it is and that takes a toll because you're hearing from one from one side of it like the ncaa is telling you or that they that they greatly value academics that they you know, academics is number one priority you're hearing administration and, and you know, staff and everybody tell you this tell you that exact same thing but the way the system operates just isn't like that because of the competitive nature um of the sport and, and everybody trying to get a you know upper hand on another team or on each other or everybody's working harder harder and harder um so i I think that part of it you know is kind of you know washed away and then people don't really understand like i I think kind of like that that contradiction and like that hypocritical nature um is very interesting to kind of undertake when you're in when you're in sports it's very it's something that that, like you don't really that they they tell you that you're that they value this and they value education, but you, they don't really. And so I think that t- it takes a toll from there because you, I mean your body's already hurting, and now you have to fight this battle of like, I guess you know the system lying to you. Um, it's not what you thought. It's not what they told your parents. So um, I think that's a whole other battle in itself. And so for a lot of people, they struggle. They either they give up essentially. You know they they just say, look, academics is not the route, and you know they get whatever grades they get, they can. Um, and they move on with their lives. They may not really be invested um, and, you know, be, be invested in their academics like that. I mean, if people didn't know, you can get a degree and not having not, I mean, you know, not know anything about that degree you got. It's very possible. It's been done with not just athletes, but, you know, regular people. It happens. So. Well, listen, I, I have a building on this because that was, that was really interesting stuff. And it's exactly the sort of thing, um, you know, we wanted to hear about it. And I think that Derek was getting out with that question, but I have an even harder question now, which is, um, 
Clearly, we understand at this point the incredible cost, the incredible harm associated with football in general from the standpoint of head injury specifically, right? My question is, can you try to give us a sense of how you think about those issues in the context of your own experience? You know, you can't, and you've been doing an incredibly admirable job of trying to kind of account for both what you feel and also because you've because you just you've spoken to so many other college football players, not just your own teammates, but you really are so connected uh, in college football, right? So I know you're having a lot of conversations, and you know it's it's amazing that you're kind of trying to account for the range of experiences that people have. But this is this is a, I think a really personal question in the sense that like you just can't know what's in other people's minds to a certain extent with this. Um, so you know. The first thing is like how how does a person cope with the sort of the science, the information that now exists about the harm of college football from a standpoint of head injury? And then the second thing is, you know, um, I, I'm also curious how you manage to be both critical and committed to the sport at the same time. Because for me, I've noticed that for a lot of elite athletes, it's not until after their careers end that they become more critical about their sport and the harm they have endured, even if it's just a simple year after they're done. And it's not, it's not surprising and it's not weird and it's not even hypocrisy. It's because it's incredibly difficult to excel at a sport, to be the kind of domination machine you're expected to be if there's any doubt, uncertainty, or ambivalence in your mind, right? I mean, it's just hard to do. So it makes sense that you wouldn't do it. So, I mean, I would just, I would love for you to share with us because there's no right answer to this question, but just to share with us how you handle this question of head injury in your own life and also how you can be so critical and political about your sport, even as you're playing it. Right. I mean, you know, with concussions, it's, 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 it's good right now um, in a way that there's a lot of science backing up what many kind of had already believed about head injuries, um, especially within football. I mean, there's a number of injuries going with other sports too, but specifically football, because it was denied, especially in the NFL for a long time, um, even when the science kind of backed it up and nobody wanted to talk about it because they're worried about people not wanting to play and scaring you know parents and kids off from that standpoint and then the sport being devalued as a whole. But, um, you know, I could say we're lucky to play in a time where um, concussions are taken much more seriously, um, especially with CTE, mm, um, it, you know, but it's still one of those things that kind of lingers in the back of your head, though, because in this, all the laws of, there's a lot of times when people, you know, might have sustained a concussion, they don't know. Like, you know, I mean, there's, um, you know, you know, they, they're, I mean, people have told me that you can sustain a concussion with just the, the smallest um, head, head, um, head injury or the head, smallest um, half of your head. So it's very interesting to see like how people react to it. It's something that people take seriously, though. I, I will say that. I mean, there's a number of concussions. There's only there's already a number of limit concussions you can have to play collegiate sports. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly where on the spectrum of like where like where that if that's really good or that, that, that limiting number is good or not. But I think it's something that lingers in the back of people's head, and it, it's something. I mean, you could see at the National Football League where guys were really retired based on you know head injuries, which it's not something that was really done before. It was something that people were kind of iffy about and they kind of just kept playing for the love of the game and money and whatnot and then um but i think it's something that's been well documented about cte and what that causes people and the harm that does and people want to live their lives because a lot of them have families um you know so i mean i i i'll stay i think it's gotten a lot better from that standpoint but it's definitely something that's like 
Definitely still pushed to the side, though, because I think generally in football, when it comes to injuries and, and things that may or may not, or things that may, like, harm the the revenue of the game or just, like, the overall popularity of the game, um, they're just pushed aside and make, they try to make sure that nobody really talks or hears about it overall. So um, it's definitely it's definitely good to see that that's, that's um, more and more it's it's definitely taken a lot more um, seriously. So, um, and then you know, in terms of being very critical about the sport and also putting your full my putting my full um, effort and, and time and um, you know just dedic- dedicating myself to, to what I do, it, it's it's something that it was hard for me to do. Like, I mean, I kind of alluded to it a little a little bit, but um, when I first got here, it's not something I really thought about. It's, I really didn't have room in my brain. For that i mean you were juggling a number of th- number of things and like you said like there's any type of doubt or um something against your sport that's not something that people like to think about because um you know they they worry about oh if i start thinking of this in a negative light then i won't succeed or or not um I, I don't i don't necessarily think that's true i think you but i, I do think you have to be very strong-minded about it because you can get really pessimistic about it you know there's there's been a number of times where this was much earlier, but there's been a number of times I'm just like, dang, this is all bad. You know, everything's bad. Um, you know, even the things I thought were good are actually bad. So, um, you know, it, it, there's a way to think about it from from that light. Um, but I think you can get caught up. And when you do, you kind of fall off. And like like you said, it's, you know, you can't can't really excel when you're always thinking negatively about about what you're doing. And it's it's. it's Basically, you're at your job and you, you kind of just hate your job. And there's no way you're ever going to, you know, get that promotion because you're never really going to um, really be dedicated to what you're doing. But nevertheless, I mean, for me, it's been something where I've always kind of seen it as like a, you know, like a balance. It's like you have to be very, you can't be ignorant. Like, I, I don't want, like, I don't like when people try to, you know, act and say, like, well, you can't succeed if you know everything that's going on or if you know how bad it is or whatever. Um, I don't really believe in it. I, 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 but I, I do, I do think that like, you don't have to. You don't also don't have to be an activist. But I, I do think it's 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 everybody's responsibility to understand like where you what you're doing is bad. Like you know, and it's same thing goes for America and same thing goes for everything. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like oh, like well, you talk negatively about America it becomes unpatriotic or whatever the case and be. Same thing with football a lot of the time. Um, you know. Sometimes you say something negative about football and then, you know, everybody, especially whether it's fans, coaches, whoever, or just generally, you know, you kind of hear like this outcry of people just trying to tell you to be quiet and this is such a great game, blah, blah, blah. Same thing they say with our country, which, you know, none of that is false. You know, it's a great country. It's a great game. But, you know, the point out where um, there are things that are going wrong, there's nothing wrong with that because you can always improve. There's nothing, nothing's perfect, as we all know. Um, and I think college sports can greatly improve, and I, I don't think something's been talked about. So I think being very critical is extremely important to actually succeeding, believe it or not, um, you know, because you can get sucked in, you know, and like really sucked into um, this this lifestyle of like all or nothing. My eggs all in one basket and, you know, trying to put everything you can in the football, which is nothing wrong with trying to put everything you can in. You know, what you love and what you want to be successful at, but at the same time, you also have to understand that you can't try to um, 
you know, lose everything else in the process, you know, whether, whether it be your, your identity, your mental health, your, 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 your education, um, you know, whatever it is, it can't, can't allow that to happen, but you also can't be like a very, you know, person that just pretends like everything's great all the time. Cause I don't think that's healthy either. Um, because you, then you kind of get hit like a, you kind of get hit, you kind of get hit by a train when you're done, you know, I, I think that's kind of where it gets people is that like after they're done, you know, being so blind and, and, and not wanting to see like another side of it. Then when they, when they, when they are exposed to the other side, it's, it's very, it's, it's a really bad taste in your mouth. Um, you know, it's something that you were like, wow, how can I have been so, you know, ignorant or whatever the case may be. So I, I think it's, I think it's extremely important to be very critical of whatever you're doing um, because that's how you know, things improve. That's how you improve. How you kind of keep yourself sane in a way. We definitely want to get to the We Are United stuff. I think that's a very important, um, the work that you're doing, the advocacy work and the, the mobilization that you're doing um, is brilliant. And we've covered it at large um, in this podcast. We definitely want to get to that. But before we do, we, we also want to ask you about something that, that makes you a very unique athlete, um, I think. Um, because you kind of have these dual roles. You're a football player, which notably for our listeners, you're a revenue um, generating or you, you participate in a revenue generating sport on the football field, but you're also a massively successful track and field star, which is, as we know, a, a non-revenue uh, generating sport. My question to you is, do you perceive a difference in your treatment in those two roles? And is one more like gratifying than the other? And how do you sort of navigate those, those two sports? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think if we're talking about like on campus in general, yeah. Like I, I, that's the, that's the general understanding. It's like football and basketball are put on a high held or put on a higher pedestal than any other sports um, on campus. That's for sure. Especially, you know, for, especially revenue versus non-revenue um, is talked a lot about. And then I think just being in a, non-revenue sport i think it also allows you to see the other side of things and how sports could be different um but you know i I think being being a track athlete as well i think you see some of the inequities um you know that happen even even with even with title nine and just some of the stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. um in in those sports and it's kind of swept on the rug whether it's sexual assault or anything like that none of that stuff gets put you know in, in in mainstream media a ton of times you know campuses kind of just keep them under wraps i mean with us us, us, just like they do other things but you know it's definitely interesting to see what goes on in in those sports not necessarily being fully a full track athlete but just kind of getting a taste of like kind of what their lives are um i I definitely think they're 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 devalued as athletes in general like just as a treatment um you know i don't think they they care for them as much as they do, um, like for example, football, basketball players, and I think that's the. I think most people um, understand that. And when when money's involved, even though the NCAA tries to act, or I don't mind, or both, they try to act like everything's very equal, and you know, especially with men and women, not revenue sports in terms of treatments, but it's obviously not the same. Um, but I think. In terms of like, I don't think I wouldn't necessarily say one is more gratifying than the other. For me, football is cool because like you know you get to you get to be a part of a team, get be better, be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. 
Um, so like that's always cool kind of working with other people. But at the same time, track is very gratifying to me because all the work I put in is going to be exemplified by like how far I throw or how far, you know, if I win the competition, it's not like going to, it's not going to be measured if like we win or lose. It's just like, you know, I don't have to necessarily worry about how my team does to, you know, to see how good or how, how, how good or bad I did. It's all kind of dependent on what I do. So I think it's gratifying from that. I think there are two different types of gratification. I think overall in terms of like the from a social aspect, or from a society aspect, yeah, like I they definitely see football players as, you know, they definitely glorify them a lot more than, not a lot more, you know, every bit more than track athletes. I mean, they don't, they don't even see some people don't even really consider track um, legitimate sports. I mean, there's people I've heard say them like nobody cares about track, even though it's, you know, it's it's such a big deal um, around the world, just kind of like how soccer is. But, um, you know, that that's kind of my thoughts on it. Now we're going to get to the, the, I don't know if it's the, for other, for listeners, maybe this is the really juicy stuff for, for Derek and I, the first half is the juicy stuff. Cause we, we always just want to know what college football is like. And I think that those, those overarching dynamics, that's like what we get really hung up on. But I mean, this has been an incredible year um, for all the reasons. And, and you, you really started it off so beautifully by describing for us how like as, as hard and as terrible as it's been, it's also been this opportunity for contemplation, right. And for rethinking and, that has been reflected in things that have emerged out of your football program um, and out of your activism. And, and we really want to get into that now because this is incredibly important, transformative stuff. Um, and I mean, it's probably hard from your standpoint on the inside to, to sort of see the impact on kind of the wider world across the country, et cetera, but, and outside the country where Derek is in Canada. But, you know, people are paying a lot of attention to, to We Are United and to what you folks have accomplished. Um, yeah, like people people have noticed. So we want to get into yeah. what it's been like for from your side. Uh, and so as I said, the first thing I want to do, though, is to get into what's happened at UCLA, because I think it's probably part of a larger narrative. And, and I'd love to know how it all unfolded. So um, I'm going to quote now from the article we wrote in The Guardian in August, um, which talked a little bit about um, what your UCLA team had done at that time. So what we wrote is, quote, in June, 30 players from the UCLA football team sent a powerful letter to the university chafing at how from, quote, neglected and mismanaged injury cases to a now mismanaged COVID-19 pandemic, our voices have been continuously muffled by the university. So that's, again, what you folks wrote. That's what the UCLA football team wrote. In response, you, the UCLA football team, declared... We as a football community assert our right to protect, preserve, and make decisions with regard to our own personal health and safety and now demand that we are able to do so without consequence in terms of reduction or cancellation of scholarship benefits or retaliation from coaches and faculty in any shape or form. And then in order to enforce these freedoms, you demanded in, that, in your letter, quote, third-party health officials in charge of overseeing and enforcing health and safety guidelines, whistleblower protections provided for athletes and staff, and the ability to make decisions with regard to personal health without consequences in terms of loss of scholarship or retaliation from coaches in any form. And, you know, I wanted to read that because to me, I see so much of the kind of the, the germ of what blossoms in, um, in the We Are United letter in the Players' Tribune, which we'll certainly uh, link in the show notes. But like so many of these powerful demands about health and safety, about a voice, about rights, and about no kind of punitive action, right? That's all there in that letter you folks wrote in June. 
Were you involved in drafting that letter? Um, and how did it come together? And what was its impact? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely involved in you know drafting that letter. It was kind of something that we kind of came together and we, we were talking to a couple of guys. We're talking, a couple guys just talking to each other and we're, um, you know, we're talking about how, you know, we're, how and if we're going to be protected with COVID and, um, you know, as, as the virus evolved or as they wanted us back on campus um, or how, as they were getting us back on campus, all was happening with all these other universities who were um, trying to come back or who were already back. We didn't want to end that same situation. So um, we kind of just discussed like what we needed to see happen and, and kind of like, especially with the whistleblower protection stuff, like we just know, like not even just UCLA, but just in general, the world of college, there's nobody who ever like upholds anything. I mean, it, it's everybody's just kind of, um, you know, expected to, you know, uphold themselves and hopefully they, they abide by their own rules and regulations, which never really works. I mean, there's not many industries that that necessarily happens and nobody there to, um, kind of uphold like a standard, but, um, Nevertheless, like I, that was kind of something that we knew like needs to happen if, if this was going to be a successful season or if we're going to be safe, um, healthy and safe. It's just we know we needed to have people who could like kind of step in and be like, look, you guys need to follow this, this, and this to make sure you keep these guys safe. Because a lot of times, like, you know, sometimes this is done perfectly, sometimes it's not. It's just overall, like, rules or, you know, their own standards or, or protocols may be broken. Um, you know, maybe trying to get more work in and maybe even guys may even push to break those rules on their own. Um, but and, and, you know, people might say, oh, like, well, you know, that's kind of what the players want or this and that. But it's sometimes you kind of have to step in and, and kind of protect the players the best you can. Um, you know, you, you have to understand that these are still, you know, still young people um, that may not necessarily exactly know what's best. For them in that moment in time, even from health and safety point, I mean, you're playing football, so it's a very dangerous sport. So, it's it's something that guys are just very um, in tune of, just like okay, like they don't mind, you know, risking their health for for stuff. But sometimes you kind of have to step in from that sample. So we needed, we know we needed somebody from from there. But um, you know, o- overall, it was just something we kind of felt like you say might have been dragging their feet in um we didn't really there wasn't a lot of communication going on going on at least from my perspective um about like our health and safety stuff i mean eventually started doing things um you know that that was more transparent and more communicative but i think they're kind of they're sitting around kind of waiting to analyze other situations at other universities around the country in that process um, weren't really updating us with like what they were what they were gonna do, and so we're like, look, I don't know, like we don't know if they're gonna do anything, <laughs> you know, like anything, like we didn't know if they're gonna do anything really assertive or anything that was gonna really make a difference. So it's like, look, this is the things that we player, as players feel that we need um, to happen to feel safe. So that's kind of just how that that kind of started about we knew we could get it and it wasn't something else that big of a deal it was unfortunate that we felt that we had to go to um media or the public um or to have our voices heard but that i think that's just echoing how many players feel in general they don't feel like they can go to their coaches or their administration or a, or a athletic director to voice concerns because they don't know how those concerns are going to be treated or they don't know exactly if and if they are heard, they don't know like what kind of 
retaliation they may face. Maybe they, they might be disliked. I, I, I don't know, like, you know, maybe even blackballed. But um, there's just a number of reasons. It's like it's kind of unsaid and unheard. But there, there's a reason that that happens, though, is that that's kind of what I'm trying to get across. It's just like it's not just that we, oh, wait, we just wanted to, you know, you know, make some weird statement or whatever like that. It's just more so it's how people felt like this, is how people felt like they could get their voices heard and they didn't feel like they could get it done through our own administration at the time. The movement as a whole actually kind of took over, I would argue, all of sports media um, for at least a week. And, and people are still talking about these things and taking over sports media, as we all know, um, for even more than a day is very, very difficult to do. But the organizers, uh, you and your colleagues of We're United, ended up sort of going to the media as one of the tools that you had to mobilize a powerful and brilliant labor movement, which I kind of want to talk about. Um, I, I really want to talk specifically about the, the powerful manifesto that we are united released in the players tribune um i won't read the whole thing but i do want to quote just the sort of brief ending um part of this where uh now i'm quoting it says hashtag we are united in our commitment to secure fair treatment for college athletes due to covid19 and other serious concerns we will opt out of Pac-12 fall camp and game participation unless the following demands are guaranteed in writing by our conference to protect and benefit both scholarship and walk-on or scholarship athletes and walk-ons. And those demands, and I, I want to um, at least outline them because I thought they were brilliantly crafted. One, obviously, health and player protections um, were sort of central to this uh, manifesto. Two, and I think this was particularly insightful for leadership, um, having this um, protection in place to protect all sports. Three, perhaps most importantly, end racial injustice in college sports. And four, economic freedom and equity. Can you explain to our listeners briefly kind of how this movement sort of came to be and what was the genesis of this particular set of demands? Yeah, so this, you know, the We Are United movement kind of started from the UCLA, um, the man, I mean, some of the cow guys um, mm -hmm. kind of caught wind of what we were doing or what we did. Um, they wanted to do something similar. They didn't know exactly what they wanted to do at first. And so they kind of just started contacting people around the conference and, you know, I, I got in touch with them or they contacted me and, and one of my other teammates, but, um, you know, and they kind of, we, we started crafting those demands in a way <clears throat> we, we didn't know exactly what we wanted to ask for. We did know that like the most impending thing was the COVID, you know, the, the stuff with the pandemic, mm -hmm. but we also knew this was an opportunity to like, really make our voices heard from, from another standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a racial standpoint. Um, given our, you know, racial, given our um, um, political, social, social and political climate, um, you know, and that's something we know we knew needed to be echoed and needed to be understood um, by a lot of people. And I don't think it was something that a lot of people were talking about before um, the pandemic or, or before the We Are United movement. And so we we decided, like, look, like we're going to go for this. We got to go for it all. And if we have, if we're able to organize the numbers to opt out in the season that a lot of people are already feel uneasy about, 
um, we could actually make it happen, you know, because, you know, people were, you know, you know, back in July, people were very uncertain about COVID. People didn't know what was going on or how, if they're going to be protected. Um, so, and they still are, but um, nevertheless, I mean, we knew it was an opportunity to garner support for a number of things and things that all of them from that most football players, you know, understood to be issues and understood things that they, they wanted. They didn't, I mean, maybe not, everybody might not have been in agreement on the numbers, the exact numbers, maybe not the 50 percent or whatever the case would be, but they agreed generally that something needed to be changed, something needed to be changed and we need to be compensated, things like life insurance and um, or health insurance and, and things like that needed to, needed to be guaranteed for us, especially within, especially if we're going to be playing um, in a pandemic. Um, that's kind of how that how that happened. And we knew we needed to do it in a way that was smart and do it in a way that was very un that even though people didn't understand people may not have understood exactly where we got our numbers for from or um exactly how um we got to those demands but we needed to make sure that people understood like this is what we're worth this is what we need this is what um players are asking for and you know if you guys don't give it to us we've essentially created a work style but you kind of you know, try to hurt their pockets um, which is the best way to get your voices heard um, is to hurt higher-ups or, um, you know, the owner's pockets in, in any way possible. And so that kind of that's when people start listening if you, if you look at history. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we hear you loud and clear. And, you know, and, we, and we've talked about that on the show before, of course, like the example for, for listeners that are unfamiliar, right? The example that we always like to point to, because I think it's it's the most powerful one, is, look, Missouri football, 2015. Um, this is before pre Colin Kaepernick, Missouri football decided to withhold their labor in protest of the racist climate on campus and the refusal of the president to meet the demands of students and faculty on campus. Um, and within days, the president had resigned. The president of the university resigned um, because they didn't want to risk missing a single college football game in that season right so um, i think oh, dude, this is so clear like you have a, a crystal clear understanding of what these dynamics are what the power dynamics are um and, and so uh couldn't agree with you more Tito, that that the power that college football players have is something that you know you you actually can't overstate the power I think that that we often too often understate it, right? This idea, you know, well, there's a lot of risk to organizing. There's there are threats to organizing. The bottom line is, college football runs our universities to a very significant extent, and college football requires college football players stepping on the field, right, and giving everything for these schools. And if you choose to withhold your labor, it all stops, right? It all shuts down. They can threaten and cajole. But the bottom line is, if a football team decides to stop, there are no replacements waiting in the wings. There's no alternatives, right? I mean, we literally have seen now, including your own, and we'll get to this, five comp the five major Power Five conferences have all elected to go back to playing football during a pandemic. Right. Even though it's crystal clear that they can't protect players properly, they can't protect fans, they can't protect the campus community. And yet, regardless, 
They're putting you all in the field because they can't afford to give up the money associated with college football. And we saw that in 2015 when the football team at University of Missouri withheld their labor to protest the racist climate on campus. And within days, the president of the university had resigned. So anyway, I just I just kind of wanted to go on that little diatribe because, you know, these are the stakes here, right? Like organizing in college football is no joke. And it's no joke from the standpoint of the institutions either, which is why it's a really high stakes enterprise that you're involved in. Um, and one that matters immensely to all of us in these university communities. So with that, with that in mind, you publish these demands in the Players Tribune, right? Like no one's beating around the bush. You are taking it to the media so that and by the way, love the decision to go to the Players' Tribune, not allowing anyone else to filter your message, right? Not allowing the media to distort your message. You like go to the Players' Tribune where it comes out exactly how you want it to come out and gets huge dissemination. That's terrific. So what happened after that? What transpired after you published those demands? How did the Pac-12 react? And do you think that these demands had an impact on the original decision to cancel or at least postpone the Pac-12 season? Yeah, so after we published those demands, um, we got, you know, a flood of media, which is, I guess you could say, is expected. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh, all these players are going to opt out of, or these things aren't, you know, if these things aren't done for them in writing. Um, but at the same time, you know, the Pac-12 was very, at least from from the, from an executive standpoint, from a commissioner standpoint, he was very unresponsive initially. Um, Larry Scott was, you know, he was trying to fend this off in a way from the way I see it. Um, we eventually got done having a meeting with him, um, but he did it in a way that was very demeaning and was, wasn't really respectful in my opinion, considering how much he talked about how, you know, how he, you know, they respected, um, you know, practical athletes and how they're committed to the, how, how progressive they were and giving athletes voices. But, which is not the type of energy we received when we talked to him. He, he was definitely kind of, um, he, he was heated a lot in the meeting and it was kind of had to be restrained a little bit by his um, athletic directors or by some of the athletic directors in that meeting. But um, we didn't even get past COVID-19 concerns. And we were talking about COVID-19 concerns because it was the most impending or most pending thing that was on our this demands, but we couldn't even get to try to understand like why we um, have those concerns. I mean, at one point he accused us of, you know, of just doing this as like as a you know, publicity stunt, um, you know, and trying to he, at some place he's asking us to opt out, or he's just like, if you guys are so concerned, just opt out. And we're like, look, we're not here because if you're here, if you is opting out, we would have done so. You know, if we only cared about ourselves, we hear for all the other Pac-12 players who may not feel like they have a voice or don't know what to say or what to do. And we've done the research, we have time to um, get this down on paper. Like, look, we need everyday testing. So NFLPA has advised is what they've done, and um, you know, for the most part, they've 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 been working seamlessly um, in the NFL. And the NFLPA told us that it wasn't going to work out if we didn't have everyday testing or um, advanced protocols. And what we had in the Pac-12 was very bare minimum. Um, we couldn't move forward. And everybody knew that. And we're like, look, we don't know how we're going to move from playing football or, or training, like, you know, regular training where you can socially distance and, and, and whatnot. 
um, to playing full contact football. Look, our issue is not with, you know, with, with something that's unheard of. I mean, this is a very legitimate concern, and it's something that, you know, his medical team should have advised him on. But at the same time, um, you know, he's telling us that there's no way they can have uniform mandates across the Pac-12, which is kind of sad considering that, you know, many teams or many sports leagues have uniform health and safety protocols and, man, you know, mandates yeah. across, across their leagues. For example, the NFL, they did it with 32 teams. We're only asking them to do it with 12 teams, you know, um, and they say they can't do it. And I, I think it's more, I don't think it has anything to do with they can't do it. I, I just don't think they wanted they wanted to um you know so that was kind of how that went about you know and then you know that was a two-hour meeting just on COVID health and safety concerns but definitely try to make it clear that it wasn't a negotiation you know we tried to limit what we were, we were talking about as much as possible <clears throat> and at the same time um we left that meeting we're like look can we have our lawyers present and he couldn't answer that question he's like look oh well i can have your lawyer talked to my lawyers, but there will, be, there will be no lawyers in the meeting. So, um, you know, and so we were just like, okay, like, look, fine, we'll, we'll meet again. <laughs> but, um, you know, we kind of left that meeting and we then emailed us, emailed us back after we responded to him saying that, oh, there, there, there are various groups in place um, to deal with, like, voicing players' concerns. Um, he's basically he was alluding to like the 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 groups that are already had already been established by the Pac twelve, by the by the exploitative and oppressive group, which is Nancy LA in the conference. Um and you know, those people only exist, they don't make any decisions. I mean, at one point somebody told me that they the only decisions they make, they kind of um paralleled it to like decisions um like a like a um like a like a student board would make in, in high school, whether to have strawberry or chocolate milk at school. So um, it, it's it, those those groups don't do anything in terms of really trying to amplify for what we want, and their their voices are never heard, and they don't get they don't really get to make, have a see the table when it comes down to making decisions about things that ultimately will affect us. So he kept trying to tell us to he kept trying to refer us to those groups, but it's funny because. The 11 guys who met with him, there's three of them who are already a part of those groups. So, I mean, if, you know, if there's a, if, if they felt like they could voice their concerns in that space, then they would have done so. But um, nevertheless, you know, he basically told us that, like, that we weren't going to be meeting again. Um, he said he wanted us to meet with his medical committee. But it's like, and we're like, look, we're, we're not just talking about medical committee. A medical committee can't solve all our issues. Um, but we decided that we weren't going to meet with their medical committee. It wasn't going to solve any of our problems. He had the power to man do the, the stuff with the mandates and protocols across the conference, but um, didn't want to do that. But then a few days, I forgot exactly what the timeline was, but they eventually canceled the season based on the same concerns that we had um, regarding testing, regarding myocarditis. Um, and so it is what it is from, from that standpoint. But um, it's something we, we definitely look to continue to talk to him about um, in the near future. Um, with the season approaching, it's very difficult to try to get guys um, 
on the, the you know on the same wavelength when it comes down to like timing and things like some of the statistics but um but it's definitely something we're looking we're looking into and and something that create like a more inclusive voice of all pac-12 players specifically and have more numbers from that standpoint and you mentioned the the numbers and i think one of the the things that many outside observers fail to see in this narrative is that is i think the the sheer scope of the movement of we are united and both in the in the pack and um in the big 10 and and the the, the sheer size of this kind of labor movement many people like critics particularly on any labor organization uh, have like said, oh, this is only a couple athletes, couple people who want it, who who kind of want to see a change in their working conditions. But I think that the the scope of this movement is actually much bigger. Could you walk our listeners through like how many players are we talking about here? Um, and on top of that, kind of how difficult has it been to to organize and get players to sort of buy in to the movement uh, more generally? Yeah, that was definitely one of the, I mean, that's the, it, it was definitely one of our greatest challenges, of course. I mean, that was the greatest challenge was trying to get guys bought into this plan, a, a very radical plan of, of opting out for for these demands, especially when things like 50% revenue share were on on there. Um, you know, it, it's something we, a lot of it had to do with educating and trying to enlighten people um, the best we could, you know. Um, you know, we had, you know, 400, 500 people um, ready to do so. It was more so of how much how bought in they were to following through with it and how, how angry they were and emotionally tied they were to some of these, some of these issues. Um, we didn't have a ton of time because we knew they were, they're approaching with the season in July. And so we're like, we, know, we kind of scrambled to get guys on board and, do things of that nature which we had people on board but at the same time it was very difficult because there were there respected people opposing us of course um, who didn't quite understand like what was going on or, or exactly why we were asking for asking for some people who felt um very grateful or um just just comfortable with where they're at so they didn't want to join so that was definitely something that we encountered and i think it's the same things that you know people encounter when you're trying to unionize in a workplace um and it's 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 the natural you know it's kind of like human nature to try to take the easy way out and not say anything and not do anything especially when if you're comfortable where you're at and don't feel like anything's wrong um or you've been um told to um you know you've been told the same thing all your life about how great it is and how how good it is to be where you're at so um, it's very hard to do from that standpoint, but, you know, nevertheless, we still, you know, must start about 400, 500 guys um, to get on board with what we're doing. And so it, it was, it was, it was a win from that standpoint, even just trying to get that many people on board and something like this was, was a win on its own um, and definitely showed the progress we've made just within collegiate college football in terms of trying to get guys understanding and educated about what's going on. Um, yeah. Um, no, it's, I, I, I can't imagine what a challenge it is to get that number of people, 300 to 400 players. I mean, like, you know, we've seen a single team attempt to unionize in the past, the Northwestern football team, and they, they did incredible organizing work led by Kane Coulter, um, who we've talked to in the past. And, um, you know, that, that was an amazing effort, but like 
this is even so much more ambitious than that because um, I think you're rightly trying to get this whole conference because the more the more people you get involved in a labor movement, the stronger it is and the more clout you have. Uh, and so, you know, it's totally laudable that you have made the effort the way that you have. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think no one can overstate really the, the challenge at the same time that you've experienced. So I want to connect this now because like, this is a narrative, again, that people have been following across the country, but it's so hard to know what's going on behind the scenes. So at the same time that you were making these demands, a movement of players in other parts of the country was demanding to play, right? Um, and yet, so on one climactic night in August, the movements kind of seemed to merge, right? Because players like Trevor Lawrence at Clemson were suddenly calling for a players association as part of their demand to return to play, which seemed like a complete 180 turn where they were before, where it was like, it seemed like almost you were two antagonistic movements, right? Like centering labor demands and threatening to opt out on the one hand. And then these other players who were saying like, we will throw essentially throw away all of our rights in order to play at any cost. And then suddenly those people who were saying they would play at any cost were saying, actually, we, we want to play, but we only want to play if we're playing safe. And in fact, as part of that movement, we actually want a players association. How did that happen? Uh, and then to what extent are those players who are now playing still invested in that demand for a players association? That kind of transpired by, we kind of just got together and we're like, look, we may not be in agreement on trying to opt out. We knew the movements were very opposing, but we didn't want to create a divide within collegiate sports. Um, you know, more or less, we wanted to make sure we could agree on some things, and then one of those things, training players association, other things from um, the NCAA and our respective conferences. Um, so that kind of just kind of happened, you know. I wouldn't necessarily out of the blue. We kind of been, we were kind of in communication with some of those guys, and, and we're trying to get something done. That standpoint, but when we quickly realized that they just weren't um, at, at this, they just weren't where we were at from a from an um, understanding standpoint, I mean, they had to, there's a lot more educating they had to do, and we had to kind of drawn in, um, um, you know, a lot more than our, our our Pac-12 guys did. So that was that was a challenge in itself, and just trying to get them to understand like what we were doing, and we knew that was going to take a while. So we're like, look, I mean, we do have a chance before anybody plays to um, kind of get something done. So, and that's kind of what happened there. Um, but you're right. I mean, their movements were very um, you know, uh, you know, kind of polar opposites, and but in in the same way that they are polar opposites, it's like we 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 necessarily we weren't necessarily not trying to play, if that makes sense. So it's like we won. We I mean, we obviously want to play. I think everybody who's playing college sports wants you know likes football or, or likes likes their sport. I mean, a lot of them, if they did, I don't think would necessarily be there. But um. I think what a lot, a lot, a lot of people want to play. It's more so, what like you know, what they were going to play, like I mean, what, what, what terms, you know. Um, but you're right. I mean, those guys are gonna, we're gonna play no matter what, in in a way, no matter if they increased health and safety protocols. And we were like, look, if you guys don't increase our health and safety protocols, we're not gonna play. So yeah, I mean, I definitely could see how um, that was seen in, in that light, and we kind of just decided to take that risk anyway. Um, you know, but in terms of how bought in some of those guys are into doing this in the future, it's hard to try to get pulse on that because like some of those guys like Trevor Lawrence and, and Justin Fields, I mean, 
they are guys who are about to go to the NFL, so we don't know like what their activism level is going to be. It's probably going to shut down after this season most likely, but I, I think we did do – we kind of ruffled some feathers and in, in, in kind of getting that conversation going. So it was kind of a win in, in, that, in, that, in that stance. It, it was – I would say it was a little bit bad timing, though, with with the seasons and, and everything, but we kind of did what we – Kind of did what we could with the time we had. What was the sort of status of the We Are United movement once the pack was canceled? Um, did you sort of try to continue organizing? Did you kind of take a step back? Are you like trying to, like in an ongoing way, trying to form a union or players association? And what are the challenges of organizing college football players when the season? was at least temporarily canceled. Yeah, so with with We United, um it's it's been it's been something that, that like the season the season was, it was definitely hard to kind of take that hit. I mean, in my mind it was it was a very union busting tactic. Um even if they did cancel for some health and safety concerns, I think part of their cancellation was based upon what this group did and um that's the threat that this group had. Um so I think in a way it kind of took away some of our, some of our thunder um, because it's like, I mean, some of our leverage is gone and then, well, the majority of our edge because I mean, we were trying to opt out and so they canceled the season. Um, so we didn't have anything to kind of leverage on or leverage our demands on. So that was, that was kind of, um, that was kind of like a negative of that. But at the same time, it, it also saw it as a positive and where we could have more time to organize guys. Um, and get get this done in a way that's more agreeable and get have a more inclusive voice, um, so we can get twelve or thirteen hundred Pac-12 football players. You know, one hundred percent of the guys. You know, we may never get there, but at the same time, we knew we could get a substantial amount more, um, considering the time considering the time frame we did it in the first time. But um, we're at right now. We're we're trying to figure out what we want to do from a from a from a movement standpoint i'm trying to figure out whether this is just going to be a movement on its own or whether this you know you know eventually en- encompass a players association or the players association is going to be something on its own but it, it's definitely hard because um you know you want you want a players association to be definitely directly representative of players of all of the majority of the players' voices um and, and at the same time you, you want to be able to weave um what um you know is best for players in terms of benefits and and gaining some of those economic rights but at the same time may not be necessarily what all the players want to fight for or agree upon so it's definitely hard from that standpoint trying to organize guys based on that so we're trying to figure out the best route take um from that standpoint and when united it's definitely not over um you know it's just a little bit tough with timing and logistics with season and guys getting ready to play um you know and, and people feeling like they met a lot of their concerns with uh with everyday testing and some of those um heart screenings um so people feeling a bit better from that standpoint so uh it's, it's hard because you see all the other conferences playing and then so everybody kind of feels juiced up to play and, and so that kind of withers in terms of opting out that kind of withers away um, but I think, nevertheless, I think it's something that it's going to happen again. again. Um, you know, the pandemic is, is not going away anytime soon. So um, it'd be interesting to see what we do um, moving forward 
you know, it's something that we're, we're organizing guys in terms of, in terms of trying to get a players association created, but also doing it in a way that has teeth, that has um, some 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 legitimate bite to it. And it's not something that's soft and something that's at the same time going to be recognized by the conference, recognized by NCAA as a legitimate true player's voices, but actually fighting for things that matter. Really, the, the last question, then, and you've been getting at this in various ways, but to you, from where you stand right now, what does the restart mean for We Are United and for your organizing efforts? Uh, and, and frankly, what does it mean for your day-to-day life at this point, right? This is like such a, you've been out for the pandemic, you've been watching other teams play. What are you feeling right now? What are you experiencing? Um, what's your outlook? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been, um, it's kind of been like a roller coaster. It's like, you know, first you're up and then you're down and you're up and you're down, but it's like, you know, we all like we all have to play football, and so that's kind of something that's like, well, we're excited to play at the same time. It's like, well, maybe playing in a pandemic, things can be very different, and, and knowing things that are going on, um, just from an exploitative standpoint. But at the same time, um, I think one thing I think some, I think it's really really been talked about is like guys are basically saying, it, especially with the We United guys, are like, look, the thirst to play football right now is more than you know, I care about playing football. Like people are saying to themselves that they care more about playing football than how much the system has been exploiting them. Um, and part of that is because it's, it has already been exploited like in the past, like nothing has changed except the fact that we're in a pandemic. And so um, that being the case, um, you know, it, it's very easy to just turn your back in a way and just like kind of put your head down. Like, oh, let's go, let's just go play because um, the, exploitive nature isn't going to change i mean the rest of the colleges i mean there's a players playing and then um the pac-12 was playing and so i mean for me it's kind of been more of the same type of stuff too is that none of this exploit stuff is has has changed and it's kind of always been this way um but it, it's definitely and from an emotional standpoint it's been it's definitely been a roller coaster it's just like we are playing we're not playing and um they are they, they are they were protecting us and they're, they're not actually protecting us or you know, it, it, it's very, it's just been a, been a crazy, it's been a crazy uh, ride. Um, and they're kind of jerking us around um, in a way, but I guess I, I say all I have to say that like, nothing's really, nothing's really changed from that standpoint, except the fact that like history is made in terms of what we did with We Are United um, and, and conversations that we have, that we got going, especially for the future. I think it's, it's going to be, it kind of paved the way for the future in terms of from athlete activism and these things. Um, especially this, I think this year has done that as well for us. As, um, but um, that's kind of just how I'm feeling about it. I mean, really nothing's changed. I mean, I've always kind of been like, I, I'll take it how it comes when if we have a season or not. I mean, I, I'll be great if we have a season, great. If we don't, um, it's an unfortunate situation, but a lot of people are living on you know, unfortunate situations with this pandemic it's canceled a lot of things for a lot of people so it wouldn't have necessarily um been something that got on my um, got on my nerves just kind of looking at it from a big picture standpoint not just looking at it from like a just a football standpoint or a selfish standpoint it's just understanding like, this pandemic has done a lot of stuff to a lot of people and just trying to understand that like it, if, if that worked if they if we wouldn't have been if we weren't going to play this year then in my mind it would it's not like anybody was necessarily taking anything away from it's like pandemic um did that on its own it's nobody's it's really nobody's fault um 
But I also, in my mind, I'm also kind of just like, at the exact same time, the Pac-12 could have went all above and beyond, or the NCAA could have went above and beyond, um, and given us enough health and safety standards to play like the NFLPA did for the NFL. Um, but of course, they didn't want to do that because it would uh, change our status, or it, it wouldn't help them um, in the future with litigation. Yeah, I think that you you raise some really really interesting points in terms of liability and in terms of the NCAA and uh, member institutions trying to kind of abdicate um, from accountability in a variety of things and co- kind of covering their their own bases. But I just want to close um, by saying, first off, thank you, Otito, for coming on the show, and and second off, like thank you for all of your wonderful and brilliant um, work, really being a leader in the um, athletic labor movement and the mobilization around not just issues about your working conditions, but also issues of racial justice um, uh, and, and very important issues that I think we have to tackle as a society more generally. So with all of that said, we just wanna thank you for coming on the show today, Otito. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or check out our website at www.endofsport.com, where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more. <laughs>